You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm recording this on Friday, July 10th, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And on today's show, we will be talking about the treason allegations against Ivan Safronov, a former correspondent for the newspapers Commerçant and Vedemosti, and, more recently, albeit only briefly, a communications advisor to Dmitry Vragozin, the head of Roscosmos, Russia's space agency, which is technically a state corporation. Today you'll hear from two guests, Rachel Denber, the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Europe and Central Asia Division, and Dmitry Gorenberg, a Senior Research Scientist in the Strategic Studies Division of CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization, and an associate at the Harvard University Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. And he's also the author of the Russian Military Reform Blog, where he's been writing for nearly 11 years already. Now, if you haven't heard anything about Safronov's case, well, I'm going to explain it. But also, if you're listening right now and you're saying, yeah, that's me, I haven't heard about it, I'm honored that you're beginning your journey into the granular world of Russian politics and national defense with this podcast. Lord knows you've got other options, so I hope you'll enjoy the show ahead. Now, as for Safronov's case, the most honest thing I can tell you is that we don't actually know very much. That's because treason investigations and prosecutions in Russia are shrouded in secrecy, and it's quite possible that the trial could end in a 20-year prison sentence, and we'd never really know what happened. But there are some tidbits, of course. Federal agents arrested Safronov outside his home when he was leaving for work on Tuesday, July 7th. After searching his apartment and his office, he was eventually placed in pretrial detention during a hearing that was ultimately closed to the public. His lawyers were granted limited access to the case file compiled by the Federal Security Service, the FSB, and the attorneys learned that Safronov appears to be suspected of selling secret information to Czech intelligence agents coordinating with the Americans about Russian military cooperation in an unnamed African Middle Eastern country. They supposedly recruited him in 2012, and he allegedly sent them the data over the internet somehow five years later in 2017. How does the FSB know all this? Sources told Commerçant that the agency wiretapped Safronov's telephone and intercepted his emails. The FSB's investigations department is handling the case, and it's expected to file formal charges against Safronov in court on Monday, July 13th. Now, in addition to this frustrating lack of transparency, there are also questions about how Safronov managed to work as an accredited journalist for years in the Kremlin press pool, and at official events sponsored by Roscosmos, Rostec, the Russian Defense Ministry, and other government outfits. When he reported for Commerçant and for Vedemosti, he was vetted multiple times, including by the Federal Protective Service, which is like Russia's secret service. Admittedly, it's not clear how thorough these background checks really are. Mikhail Rubin, a former Kremlin press pool reporter who's now a deputy chief editor at the investigative website Projekt, told Medusa that the process isn't very strict, and he says he's not actually sure 
if the authorities take it seriously. But before Safronov could start his job at Roscosmos, he was very likely screened by the FSB, which is the same agency that had him under long-term surveillance and has now accused him of treason. Though the Kremlin says Safronov isn't being prosecuted for his work as a journalist, one popular theory about the case maintains that it's a response to an article he co-authored in March 2019 in Commerçant about Russia supplying Egypt with Su-35 fighter jets. After the story was published, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo threatened Cairo with sanctions if it bought Russian warplanes. In June 2019, an anonymous source told the news agency TASS that Commerçant's publishing house could be held liable for disclosing protected state information. The TASS story never specified what in that report about the fighter jets was classified, but the article itself later disappeared from Commerçant's website, although you can still read an archived copy if you really want. According to Forbes Russia, that article disappeared because of the story published by TASS. Court records indicate that the only administrative lawsuit against Commerçat at the time was filed on May 24th. On June 5th, after the newspaper unpublished Safronov's report, the charges were dropped. However, the authorities pursuing Safronov's treason case haven't even contacted Commerçat's editors, and his co-author on that fighter jet story told Medusa that she hasn't heard from the FSB either. Safronov's arrest came a day after another Russian journalist was sentenced in another very controversial criminal case. Svetlana Prakopiva was convicted of justifying terrorism by writing an article where she argued that the FSB was itself partly responsible for creating the conditions that drove a teenager to blow himself up in an attack on a federal building in October 2018. Prosecutors wanted Prakopiva imprisoned for six years, but the court only fined her 500,000 rubles, about $7,000. That was Monday. Safronov was Tuesday. The week before, police officers broke the arm of Mediazona correspondent David Frankel at a polling station when the site commissioner wanted him removed. Last year, of course, the police planted drugs on Medusa special correspondent Ivan Galanov, apparently in retaliation for his investigative reporting about corruption in Moscow's funeral business. So that's a very brief history of some of the unwanted police attention that journalists have attracted in Russia in the last few weeks, months, year. To understand these trends a little better, I spoke to Rachel Denber, the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Europe and Central Asia Division. She says the treason allegations against Ivan Safronov represent the escalation of something that's become familiar. Safronov's case is taking the repression against journalists and pressure on, on journalism to a whole new level. There has been, look, for the past you know 15 years, there's been considerable growing pressure on media outlets, on journalism, on freedom of expression, through a wide variety of means uh, in Russia, through the adoption of new of new laws that limit speech, through new internet regulations, through the engineering of uh, editorial takeovers at various outlets. There have been, you know, there are also sensitive issues that, oh, that uh, around which journalists have been uh, targeted for attacks or prosecution, you know, but I think pushing treason charges against Safronov is a whole, it's just, I hate to use, you know, an American expression, but it's a whole new ballgame. This is a completely different, a completely, I think it's a departure from the usual and the the sort of more garden variety, but all always 
rising levels of repression on free on on media freedoms. And that's because of the, the serious of the charge, the seriousness of the charge, it's treason, it's a maximum 20 year it's a maximum 20 year sentence. I believe this will be a, a case where they will they will use they're using the new the new definition of te- of treason that was adopted when the you know through, through the amendments to the treason law back in 2012. So it's a new, much looser uh, definition of treason. It becomes quite non-specific. It's open to interpretation. Russia's definition of high treason, laid out in Criminal Code Article 275, is broad indeed. According to the law, high treason can be committed only by a Russian citizen in the following three forms. 1. Transmission by a Russian citizen of state secrets to a foreign state or an international or foreign organization or its representatives, if the citizen had access to such information. Form number 2. Espionage, the transfer, collection, theft, or storage of information constituting state secrets for the purpose of transmission. And finally, form number three, providing financial, logistical, advisory, or other assistance in activities against the security of the Russian Federation. Foreign citizens or stateless persons who do any of this can be charged with espionage, which is not to be confused with treason in the form of espionage. They're two different criminal code articles. That maybe sounds convoluted, but foreigners face 10 to 20 years in prison for espionage, whereas Russian citizens face 12 to 20 years for treason. By far the most confounding thing about treason and espionage in Russia is that the list of state secrets, the information you're not supposed to share, is itself classified. This lack of transparency makes it impossible to understand fully what is considered a state secret and what is not meaning that Russians can never really know if they're committing an act of treason. Now, you might think it's got to be hard to dig up something that would qualify as a state secret. But citizens can be prosecuted for treason in the form of espionage if they share open source information that's considered to be potentially harmful to Russian national security. Just last month, the FSB charged 78-year-old Arctic specialist Valery Mitko with selling classified data about Russian submarines to Chinese intelligence. Mitko says he was merely traveling to China and giving lectures that drew on open sources. He, too, faces up to 20 years behind bars. I think that the move against Prokopieva also marked... I mean, I would see that... I would use that case together with Safronov's case to say we've come... You know, we've reached a new level. Because, I mean, you have to remember that Safronov had been under surveillance... um, you know, secret surveillance for, for quite some time. It turns out there are already, you know, six, six volumes of, of information on his case that have been gathered. So they had, you know, they've been tagging him for quite a while. I think that, you know, Prokopiev, I mean, no, Prokopiev is not, thank God she's not going to jail, but they've wrecked her life. They turned her life upside down and they sent a, you know, and they were sending a very strong message about, you know, where the boundaries are going to be. And I think that they're doing the same with Safronov. I don't know whether they were whether the timing was coordinated or coincidental. That's that's really hard to say. But I, on the one hand, there is a certain coordination. I don't think the case against Prokopieva was sort of cooked up by the local Pskov uh, FSB. If it were, then maybe the case probably would have fallen apart, right? So I think this is the central, you know, this is the centralized security services, and it's the centralized security services that, go, that have gone after both of these journalists. It's a different, harsher, uh, 
version of pressure against uh, journalists than we had in the past. These are very serious charges with very serious prison sentences. You know, um, it's not as though that there are dozens and dozens or even hundreds of cases like this. It's not as though you have, there aren't hundreds of journalists in jail in Russia. There aren't, but you don't need that. The point is to, the, the, the idea is to make a point by putting, by all you need to have is one case and to make it a really high profile one to send a very, very chilling message. And that's what they've done with Safranov, and that's what they've done with Svetlana Prokopieva. Being an American and commenting on this stuff, this is this is obviously both something that I'm thinking about all the time with kind of everything to do with Russia, but also it's something that I'm usually, or I'm often kind of like hit with on social media from people that don't like me talking about anything bad in Russia. Does it seem difficult or uniquely hard to comment on these issues and to criticize sort of the human rights situation in Russia as an American? I mean, I know that the Human Rights Watch is an international organization, but it, it has American roots as, as far as I understand. And so I wonder, like, is this more of a challenge for you now, maybe especially since it seems like America's kind of moral authority in the world has declined? Yes and no. I mean, it's always a challenge. <laughs> it's always a challenge for me, Kevin, but, uh, because uh, I get... Just because of my, when I do it in Russian, <laughs> because I, I can't express myself as confidently in Russian as I can in English. But no, um, Human Rights Watch is an international organization, but I, I feel pretty confident that our investigations and our reporting and our activism in the United States is so strong and so extensive and so principled that, um, I, that, that, that makes me more confident about what I say about about Russia, about Georgia, about Armenia, about Turkmenistan, about all the other countries that I cover. And in fact, I think as the past four years, yeah, almost the past almost four years now have shown, you know, the human rights are in, are in, in many different ways are in jeopardy in the United States. And uh, my colleagues have done just stellar work in exposing that and in calling for change, more work than ever. So that gives me that gives me hope for America, but that also gives me a lot of much you know confidence in, in my role. And you know, I, I also like always like to point out that you know we have a very very small team of people working on Russia and and other countries in the region. Very small, you know. Whereas I think it's it, it is the United States to which Human Rights Watch has the greatest number of country researchers. That's where we put, you know, in terms of numbers of people who cover any one country, there's no country we cover with more people than the United States. Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial. And there was a time until maybe five or six years ago when there was a lot of more openness in Russian military reporting. That's Dmitry Gorenberg, the Russian defense expert I mentioned at the top of today's show. I asked him what journalism like Ivan Safronov's work means for specialists like him. Dr. Gorenberg says this kind of reporting is worth more than just the information it provides Russia watchers abroad. It obviously helped Western analysts who can't you know, get to, to Russia that often and talk to people, but it also helped Russians just to know what's going on in, in that sphere, both in terms of what kind of, what the priorities are, what you know, what kind of activities, what the focus of the exercises is, what kind of equipment they're, they're purchasing, the plans for the future, and also what 
potential partners in terms of arms sales and that sort of thing. So all of those areas are ones that are valuable, not just for the broader analytic community, but for, you know, I mean, for society, for that's why they do it. They don't, I mean, they don't do it for us. They do it for <laughs> their own people. And, and at, you know, there was a time when, you know, under the previous defense minister in particular, under Sertikov, when uh, there was kind of, I mean, maybe because of the infighting uh, among, between, you know, the, the defense ministry and the kind of the career military types who hated Sertikov, or maybe for other, other reasons. But there was a lot of an effort to expose some of the corruption, some of the inefficiencies that were happening in the military. And that was done through military. In, in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of the, the key aspects of that were uncovered by journalists. Now, we all, you know, we all know how Russian journalism operates. There's a lot of leaks, a lot of deliberate leaks. So that was certainly part of it, even back then. There's been a lot less openness to the military to this kind of reporting uh, in in the last. You know, it's been it's you know it's been decreasing over time. You know, over the last five or six years, I would guess. And so, so you kind of have less and less information being publicized about any, you know, there's, there's kind of the official line. You know, there's much more of an effort to ch- kind of make the official line the only line so that there's control over the message and you don't hear about problems. So, you know, there used to be a lot of fairly critical reporting on things like housing shortages for officers, right? You don't hear much about that. You don't hear much about hazing anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, to some extent, there's less hazing. Uh, that's part of it. And there are more apartments. Uh, and that's part of it. But part of it is also that, you know, those are those kinds of lines of inquiry mm-hmm. are discouraged. Is it safe to say that the that militaries everywhere are hostile to investigative reporters? Or is there a compelling national defense interest in having that kind of, if not transparency, then at least a sort of like watchdog role for the, I mean, are there, they don't seem to be prominent in Russia right now, but is it a phenomenon anywhere that military officials will sort of not be hostile to investigative journalism? So, I mean, nobody, no, no bureaucrat wants their um, dirty laundry aired in public, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So from that point of view, I would imagine there are very few that are open to, you know, that kind of investiga- investigation. So then the question is just what are the societal norms and what are the, the legal rules for in, in whatever country it is that regulate this kind of inquiry? So, you know, I'm sure that people, you know, folks in the Pentagon don't really want investigations of whatever, you know, if there are, you know, I mean, we saw this a couple months ago when the, um, the captain, the Navy captain was dismissed the aircraft carrier that had the, COVID infections on board, right? No, you know, I'm sure the the military didn't want that, the process through which all that was handled, revealed in the press. But in the United States, there's a very strong tradition of military journalism, including, you know, uh, newspapers that are, you know, or I shouldn't say newspapers, media, let's say, that are that are connected to the various services, right? The Navy Times, whatever. So, so, so that gets 
aired out, even if the particular person who may be negatively affected by some issue is doesn't want that to happen. And and I think that's those kinds of norms are you know certainly absent among the Russian government officials and also the legal framework is such that it can be you know you can find there there they can find various ways oh there is officially there's freedom of the press obviously right. which is why you have to use these other methods to kind of create a chilling effect i'm sort of curious to see how i mean there's there's a big mobilization now i think among the russian journalist community right and we we saw this before in a very different kind of case uh, last summer with Andolonov. Mm-hmm. And so I'm this is this is going to be much harder to counter. That one was a particularly blatant and badly carried out kind mm-hmm. of uh, case of falsifying evidence. This, I, I think the the FSB is probably likely to be much more thorough and much more low to give up there's so 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 i'm i'm just you know i'm the 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 society versus state dynamic in russia is not as kind of i hate to use the word but you know the state is not totalitarian right it's it's there's there is an ability to some extent to push back i don't know how it'll play out but it's something that's worth watching yeah, I wonder. The, I mean, the the for the for on day one, it was you know pickets and and everything. The kind of like the it was a, a redux of the Golanov thing. But I have to say, like in the last day or two, I mean, it's only been three days, but even in the last day or two, I don't know. He's not really in the headlines as much anymore. Safronov, I mean, I really do think that that by classifying everything, which is you know what happens by default in a treason case, you're just not left with enough to get angry about. You just you have the fact of the arrest, obviously. It's possible. That there's a component of intra-elite rivalries here, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. was working for Roscosmos. You know, yeah. we've got Ragozin on the record saying nice things about him. It's possible that this is yet another case of, you know, some group within the FSB or the Defense Ministry or wherever trying to undermine some other group within Roscosmos or, or wherever else. And, uh, and, the, and then also, you know, oh, and we can kill two birds with one, salt, uh, one stone and have a chilling effect on, on journalists writing about these things. So th- that's also just something that's, that's worth um, uh, watching. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Rachel Denber, the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Europe and Central Asia Division, and Dimitri Gorenberg, a Senior Social Scientist in the Strategic Studies Division of CNA, about treason allegations against Ivan Safronov, and about the nature of reporting on the military, which is what Safronov did when he worked as a journalist. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Twitter, wherever, wherever you leave reviews. doesn't matter. The inside of a bathroom stall, wherever you got to do it, it's helpful. The more good reviews we have, and please, please make them good. If they're bad reviews, I, I don't encourage you to share those. You can keep those to yourself. Good reviews put the show in front of more people. That's what we want here. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>